invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 will be in verses 1 through 15. We're right near the end of this gospel of Jesus the King, and today we're looking at the resurrection of Jesus the King. The resurrection of Jesus the King. As we walk through this text this morning, we'll see this central truth that the resurrection makes the good news of the gospel the best news possible. The resurrection makes the good news the best news. So we'll read verses 1 through 15 in Matthew 28. Matthew writes, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, in the providence of God, we have in our Bibles four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that each tell us about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, each of the gospel writers shares a different perspective on the life of Christ, but all four share this story, the story of the resurrection. But in sharing this story, each writer shares his own perspective on this day, on this moment. Now, have you ever had a time where maybe I don't know, you got adult siblings or cousins and you're spread all over and you come back together and you remember, you're remembering things that happened. Remember stories maybe from when you were a kid and you're sitting around the table and you're sharing these things. Recently had one of these with my family. We were sitting around my mom's kitchen table and we're all sharing various stories. And the funny thing is sometimes you live through the same moment and you remember it very differently, either based on your age, you know, one kid's young, one kid is old. Or maybe based on what you experienced. You were the one being punished and someone else was watching what happened. And so as adults, you can look, can look back and laugh about that. But what, what you do is you each share a unique perspective. And that's what happens here. Matthew shares a perspective of four that we find on this moment. And as we share, as we, as we get Matthew's perspective and we compare it with the other gospel accounts, we get a fuller picture of what goes on here. Now there's something significant missing in Matthew's story. But interestingly, this is missing from all four gospel accounts. So it's Sunday morning. The Sabbath has passed. 
and we find some people going to the tomb. And who do we find running to the tomb? Mary and the other Mary. Now Mark tells us there's a third person there, Salome, also a woman. So what's missing? Or who's missing? Where are all the men? We find women running to the tomb, but where are the men? Well, John's gospel gives us the answer. John 20, verse 19, tells us that the disciples are hidden in a room behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They're afraid to be seen out and about. This moment, as you can imagine, is a, is a politically and physically fraught moment for these disciples. And it's so intense that the, that the Jewish leaders have placed a guard of soldiers at the tomb. They didn't want us to be seen anywhere near there. So the bold, the brave, those venturing out, a few women, while the men all hide inside. You see, the tomb is a risky place to be if you're a disciple. The tomb is a risky place to be if you claim to know Jesus. So we're going to take some moments now and and walk through this story. We're going to follow this by looking at the significance of these moments. In the first seven verses, we find the account of the resurrection. The resurrection. Now, Matthew's story, the way he tells this, can be a little bit confusing if we don't compare it with the other Gospels, because he kind of jumps around in time here a little bit. The main characters here are women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They're introduced to us in verse 1, and then with what happens immediately, it almost sounds like they're there and they observe this moment, this earthquake, the stone rolling away, but that's not exactly what happens. What Matthew does is he introduces us to the main characters. Mary and Mary go to the tomb. And then he tells us something. He looks back in time and he tells us that something has already happened. There's been this earthquake. An angel appeared, rolls a stone away, and Jesus has risen from the dead. But these ladies don't yet know this. So we've got this introduction. We've got this look back in time. And then we're going to see what happens afterward. The angel from from heaven appears and rolls back this stone. And verses 2, 3, and 4 tell us how the guards respond to this moment. They're literally paralyzed with fear. They became, verse 4 tells us, like dead men. Now, when the women see this angel there, when they arrive, they respond in fear as well. The angel tells them, don't be afraid. In John chapter 3, there's a leader of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night and he asks him, how do we enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him a rather curious statement. He says, you must be born again to enter my kingdom. Kind of a weird phrase. And so Nicodemus says, well, how could we be born again? And it's shortly after this that Jesus speaks what is the most famous verse in our English Bibles. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that man, Nicodemus, through that moment becomes a follower of Jesus. And in John's gospel, John chapter 19, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices to anoint Jesus' body for burial. But what we already know is this happens very quickly. There's, there's an embalming process, and they don't have time to do it before the Sabbath. They have to get it done. So Matthew tells us the women go to see the tomb. They're going to see the tomb. But Mark and Luke add this detail for us, that as they come, they're bringing spices to finish what was not done very well by the men on Friday. Now, 
This is not the first time that men have kind of done a shoddy job of preparing something. But, but Mary, Mary, and Salome go, and they're going to finish the job properly, embalm Jesus. Now, when they show up at the tomb, one of the angels says to them, I know why you're here. You seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen as he said. So this moment of resurrection then leads to their task. They are to make a report. Verse 7, he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. So as the women leave the tomb, they're experiencing conflicting emotions. Matthew says they departed quickly. They go to do this. But they leave with fear and great joy. Now I know there's no one here who can identify with this mixture of emotions. Fear and joy. You know, like that mom who's seen her little boy growing from baby to toddler and it's the first day of kindergarten you know we've moved from preschool to big school and and you're seeing him walk out the door and there's a part of you that's filled with joy in this moment i can't believe we're here but there's a part of you that's a little bit sad and afraid in this moment like i can't believe we're here or maybe your your daughter has grown in 18 years i mean she hasn't been your little girl for 18 years in her mind But in your mind, she's still your little girl. And now she's walking out the door to college, out on her own. And and you're like, is this little chick ready to fly? And she's like, Mom, I'm a big old bird. And you just see that that little baby bird. And you're filled with pride and joy that you've come to this moment in life, but also with fear, sadness. These women are experiencing a mixture of emotions. Fear at what they've seen, but joy at what it means. Now, as the women run, they've they've got all these emotions running through their head. They're they're scared and they're happy at the same time. But if you think they're emotionally mixed up now, what happens next makes it a whole lot worse. As they go, they meet Jesus on the way. And I love the way that Matthew uh, tells us about what happens in verse 9. I mean, the women, I mean, you can imagine, they're just like going crazy. And they're running along, and Jesus appears he says, what's up? <laughs> Greetings. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the most mundane, ordinary way to greet anyone. Hello, ladies. And how do they respond? They fall at his feet and worship him. He says one word, hello, boom. They fall at his feet and worship. You see, they believed the angel's words, but now that faith is confirmed by their personal experience. Yet we know they're still all aflutter with all this emotion because Jesus tells them also what the angel told them. Don't be afraid. So afraid. Then he gives them the same instructions that that the angel said, go tell the disciples. And now Jesus says, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. Now there's something that doesn't jump out at us right away in our 21st century culture. But it is vitally important in understanding what's going on here. Who are Matthew's witnesses? Women. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us this morning, but in the first century, if you want to prove something actually happened, if you want to prove that something is true, you don't tell a woman. Because you could have a whole group of women observe a crime happen, but the person, the murderer, the thief, could walk off scot-free because a woman's testimony isn't admissible evidence in a court of law. 
You see, in their culture, women are like dogs, useful for certain things, but not to be trusted or respected. And yet Jesus uses women as his key witnesses. Now, there are a lot of things as we work our way through the word of God that are hard for us to reconcile. Why does God allow some of the things that he's allowed to happen? Why does the history of redemption include the people and events it includes? Murder, rape, incest, adultery, the mistreatment of women, a prostitute. All of these things appear in the line of Christ. David, man after God's own heart, the rapist and a murderer. Abraham, the father of many nations, is involved in sex trafficking his own wife out of fear of a ruler. Why? Well, God's word tells us that the mind of God is too sovereign for humans to understand. It's beyond us. And yet, we can see clearly that one effect of sin in the world has been the tendency of sinners to abuse positions of influence. And so God just here, very kindly in this resurrection moment, lest there's any misconception about how he views the value of women, the first eyewitnesses are women. I mean, the Bible is clear. God creates males and females differently, with different roles and different responsibilities at home and in the church. But the Lord cherishes women and affirms them as valuable and reliable. Now, the world has always abused sexuality and gender in one way or another. Sometimes it's authoritarian, abusive cultures. Or sometimes it's by denying God-giver differences. But the answer for us is always Scripture. The Bible never shies away from the sinfulness of the world we live in, this fallen, broken creation. But it always provides answers and hope. The women went to the tomb. And the women go tell the disciples, Jesus valued the identity and veracity of these women in a world that wouldn't. The women go make the report. But this leads us to yet another effort on the part of the Jews to repress what happens. There is resistance in verses 11 through 15. After the angel disappears, Jesus is raised. The guards who are paralyzed get themselves together and they run to the city. Now, some presumably stay behind because Matthew says that some of them went into the city, verse 11. Now, if you're a chief priest and you wake up the day after Sabbath, this is the worst possible news that you could imagine. I mean, you've done everything that you could to keep this from happening. And yet everything that you feared has taken place. So now you've got to switch strategies. You tried to prevent it from happening. Now you've got to suppress the news that it's actually happened. They couldn't bury Jesus deep enough. So now they've got to bury the news about Jesus even deeper. Jewish leaders get together, make up a collection, to pay off the guards to lie about what's happened. Now the guards are allegedly there at the tomb to protect the body from being stolen. That's not why they're really there. There's the reason, and then there's the real, the real reason they're there is to protect the interests of the Jewish leaders. They're paid to do that, not to protect the truth. The women, a few women, unreliable women, say Jesus is alive, and now we've got a whole squad of soldiers who say he's not. And their excuse is, 
they fell asleep at their post. All of them fell asleep at their post. Now, this isn't the only time this sort of thing has happened. Uh, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin tells a story during the Civil War of a, a Union picket who fell asleep at his post by the name of William Scott. William Scott, like many soldiers in that era, was a very young man. And a friend of his became sick, was assigned to sentry duty, and so he stood that night sentry for his friend. Well, the very next night, he was assigned sentry duty. So 48 hours, he's gone without sleep, and that second night, he fell asleep at his post. Well, the penalty for falling asleep at your post, if you're a sentry, is death. It's capital punishment. First century, also 19th century America. And so William Scott is approaching the day of his execution. Well, somehow in, in the presidential mansion in the White House, two people hear about this. Mary Lincoln, President Lincoln's wife, and his son, Tad Lincoln. And Tad goes to his dad and he begs him, Dad, imagine if it were me and I were tired and I'd been fighting all day and marching and I got so tired and I fell asleep at my post. And he begs for the life of William Scott. His wife begs him to eventually, the day before the execution comes, Lincoln relents, he goes to General McClellan, he says, please issue a pardon for this soldier and tell him it was ordered by the Mrs. President, Mary Lincoln. So Scott walks free, Scott free. The penalty for falling asleep at your post is death. So soldiers claiming to have fallen asleep is rather remarkable and unbelievable. But if they spread this story, the leaders swear to them that they'll prevent them from being punished by Pilate. You know, there have always been people invested in preventing the spread of the gospel. I mean, sometimes it's by open opposition, like a bunch of soldiers in front of a tomb. Sometimes it's by twisting truth, like bribing guards to lie. But whether the efforts opposing the gospel are open, authoritarian, like North Korea or Saudi Arabia in our own day, or whether their efforts to twist the truth of God's word, like preachers who deny what the gospel actually says or what God's word actually says, the advance of the gospel has never depended upon our ability to overcome opposition, but on the spirit of God who, like Jesus told Nicodemus, moves in a way that you can see but not truly observe. You can see the effects of it, but you can't see it actually happen. Can you stop the wind? Can you even see it? But it cannot be stopped. You can watch what it does. And in the same way, the gospel has advanced through centuries of persecution. The church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, in the early centuries of the church, as opposition, as people opposing the gospel attempted to kill those spreading the gospel, it spread like more seed. As people saw people die for the cause of Christ. I mean, the church today shouldn't primarily fear that we lose earthly freedom, but rather that we lose touch with the eternal mission of redemption. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We don't know the rest. We don't, we don't know every chapter in the story of redemption. But we do know last year. Jesus is risen and he is coming back. We'll move from the story itself to the significance of this story. 
Each gospel writer shares a unique perspective, but all of them have this in common. It catches everyone by surprise. It's completely unexpected. Now, multiple times Jesus has said this will happen, but no one actually expects it to happen. So the first thing that we see is fear. The first human reaction to the resurrection is fear. First of all, in verse 4, the guards trembled in fear. Then verse 8, the women leave the tomb with fear. Then John 20 tells us the disciples are hiding because they're afraid. Yet for followers of Jesus, the resurrection actually removes the need to fear. As the disciples in John 20, they're cowering behind locked doors. Jesus appears to them and he speaks these words, peace be to you. Or to the women after the tomb, don't be afraid. The resurrection brings comfort for those who know Jesus. How does the resurrection affect our tendency to fear? The resurrection means Jesus is more powerful than inner darkness. The resurrection means Jesus is more powerful than anything we fear for our children. The resurrection means Jesus is more powerful than cultural decline. The resurrection means Jesus is more powerful than temptation. In Romans chapter 6, Paul links the resurrection with our power to fight sin, and he says, sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The resurrection delivers us from the power of sin and fear. But not everyone experiences the power and comfort of the resurrection. The soldiers get left in fear. There's no deliverance. There's no word of comfort for them. So what makes the difference in the lives of what the women see happen and what the soldiers see happen? Faith. Our story moves beyond fear to faith. What did Mary and Mary go to see? Verse 1, they went to see the tomb. Yet six times after that, the text references seeing. Sometimes it's the word see, and sometimes it's the word behold, which means look. And there's a progression. Verse 1, they went to see the tomb. Verse 6, they saw where he lay. Verse 7, they will see him. Verse 8, look, it's Jesus. John 20 tells us that the first disciples who hear the news, they run to see the tomb. And the first two to make it there are John and Peter. John stops outside the tomb. Peter runs on in. He looks. It's empty. And then John follows him in. And when John sees the tomb is empty, John tells us he saw and believed. He saw an empty tomb, and it was enough. He believed. There are people who know the truth about Jesus and yet fail to embrace it because they willingly suppress it, like the soldiers. They knew the truth. But the disciples aren't a whole lot better. I mean, they're in a room hiding. But what makes a difference? Repentance and faith. They believe. I mean, moments before, they're in a room prisoners of fear. What changes their fear? Jesus says, don't be afraid. In Luke chapter 24, two disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus. And on the way, they're, they're sort of arguing and they're discouraged. And then a man appears next to them and he's walking with them. And he's explaining things to them. And he begins to explain to them how everything in the law and the prophets points to Jesus Christ. And then he leaves and then they realize that was Jesus. It's after the resurrection. In every case, what we see is an encounter with the risen Christ turns people from fear to faith in Christ. Apart from true faith in Christ, the resurrection can't do you any good. It's not something that does you good on a shelf out there. 
It must be something that becomes personally appropriated in here. You see, God created this world good. And yet before the world even had a start, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, sinned and broke God's single law. And in breaking that law, broke the goodness of creation. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is a search in anticipation of someone to fix this problem. And into this gap steps Jesus. And Jesus lives a perfect life, breaking no law, perfectly fulfilling God's law. And then he died a sacrificial death in our behalf and rose and conquered sin and death and hell. And how does this become appropriated? How does this become ours? Through faith. We must believe. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Yet faith in Jesus doesn't remain there. It moves to worshiping Jesus. I'm going to say something here that may sound hard to believe, but it's actually true. So so track closely with me here. It's possible to make a profession of faith in Jesus because you worship yourself. Now that may sound crazy, but it's actually true. For instance, I pray a prayer to trust Christ, not because I'm convicted about my sin. I pray a prayer and praise, not pray pray a prayer, not because I'm convinced that worshiping, not the failure to worship Jesus is a sin punishable by death. Or I pray a prayer not to establish a lifelong relationship with Christ. Rather, I pray a prayer to get a ticket out of hell, and once I have my ticket, I'm living my life. And the difficulty with that is as we search God's word, what we see is that there is no record, I mean none, no record at all of true faith in Christ that looks like that. You see, true faith in Christ worships Christ and then forsakes our old way of life to follow Christ. Look again at verse 9. What does Jesus say? Hello, greetings. And how do the women respond in faith? They fall at his feet and worship him. This is why we're committed to Christ-centered worship. You see, worship isn't about our traditions or styles or norms. It's not about a set of patriotic or political or cultural norms. It's about the exaltation of the risen Christ. And whatever we do ought to point people so clearly there that they can't even imagine that we would worship something else because Jesus is so precious to us. We spend so much of our time consumed with things that the Bible isn't clear at all about. And so little time that we often neglect and overlook the most important things, the worship of the Son of God according to the Word of God. How has the resurrection transformed our worship? But for those who truly trust Christ, worship is never ultimately about us. It must produce a mission. Go and tell. Let's track another theme through the passage here. The beginning of verse 7, the angel says to the women, go tell the disciples. Verse 8, they ran to tell. Verse 10, Jesus says, go and tell. Yet this isn't the only message. The soldiers have a message too. 
Verse 11, they went and told the chief priests. Verse 12, verse 13, the chief priests say, tell the people this. Verse 15, the story has been spread. You see, the good news of the gospel is inseparable from the mission of the gospel. Go and tell. And if we don't, if we don't spread this message, we must know that there is an enemy spreading a different message. That Jesus didn't rise. That Jesus doesn't save. That we don't need him. So God's mission for us is the same as it was for these women. Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell. How does the resurrection affect our mission? How does the truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again affect the way you do business? How does the gospel affect your life as a father, mother, husband, wife, child, friend, students? Who are you telling about the good news that Jesus saves? When was the last time you invited someone to come to church to hear the gospel? When was the last time you had a meaningful conversation with a friend about the gospel? Fear, faith, worship produces mission. The resurrection makes the good news the best news. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive, and Jesus does save. Brothers and sisters, let's go and spread this news. Go and tell. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk with him now.